Section 17 of Egypt, Africa, and Arabia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 3, Egypt, Africa, and Arabia, edited by Eva March Tepan. Section 17. A Trip to the Pyramids by Bayard Taylor yesterday i decided that the weather had finally settled fair and we might venture as far as the pyramids without encountering either rain or cold wind yet it was a day which would have deceived anyone unfamiliar with the phenomena of the egyptian climate the sky was overcast rather with a soft ashen-coloured fleecy vapour than with clouds the wind blew lightly from the south leaving a heavy sultry feeling when it paused and i was hardly surprised when an english tourist predicted a fearful storm presently when i answered a storm is impossible today," he looked at me with an air of pitying incredulity and then turned away we engaged an open carriage at twenty francs for the day provided ourselves with lunch and set out at nine o'clock just above bullock the nile is now spanned by a splendid iron bridge beyond which a broad highway has been built leading to the very base of the great pyramid this is certainly better than the former approach by ferryboat and donkey path for it reduces the practical distance from three to four hours to one and a half the way was crowded with camels and country people, the former bearing huge but not very heavy burdens of freshly cut clover. Women and donkeys bore loads of vegetables, and the boys trotted, yelling, after them. Our dark footman, in his white cape and shirt, ran in advance of the carriage, parting the multitude to right and left with his long stick and crying out, take care there take care of your legs the strangers are coming thus we passed over the bridge entered the avenue of acacias leading to gizi and saw the pyramids flushed with a faint rose colour against the sky the west bank of the nile Gesseri, was formerly an island and its name indicates and will soon be one again the shallow channel having been allowed to fill up or being purposely dammed the river became so much stronger in its current that the bullock shore is partially eaten away and the island must needs be restored we presently reached the track of the railway to upper egypt which now starts from Mbabe on the western bank but will soon be run in connection with an early train from alexandria so that travellers can leave the mediterranean in the morning and almost reached Siut, the capital of Upper Egypt, in the evening. Looking southward over the wheat fields, the immense fronts of two unfinished palaces meet the eye. I should take each of them to be as large as Buckingham Palace in London. The Khedive is building them for his two sons, and taxes are high in Egypt, and money is scarce and half of Mariette's inestimable collection of antiquities is stowed away in dark magazines for want of room to show them. The carriage road is raised about twelve feet above the level of the soil in order to be dry during the season of inundation. 
The acacias with which it is planted seem to grow with difficulty, and just now many of them are being removed and replaced with trunks a foot or two in diameter. They need expensive watering, however, until the roots are long enough to reach the permanent moisture of the lower soil. Even the huge old trees on the way to Shobra seem to require an occasional drink in dry seasons. Nothing could be lovelier than the intensely green wheatlands stretching away to the Libyan desert, bounded on the south by thick fringes of palm. The wind blowing over them came to a sweet with the odor of white clover blossoms. Larks sang in the air, snowy ibises stood pensively on the edges of sparkling pools, and here and there a boy sang some shrill, monotonous Arab song. In these, the citadel mosque stretched its two minarets like taper fingers averting the evil eye, and in front of us the pyramids seemed to mock all the later power of the world. Not forty but sixty centuries looked down upon us from those changeless peaks. They antedate all other human records except those of the dynasty immediately preceding that which built them. Hebrew, Sanskrit and Chinese annals seem half modern when one stands at the foot of piles which were almost as old as the Colosseum is now when Abraham was born. We crossed the track of the railway drove beside it for a mile or two further, and then struck directly across the level lands toward the dorky terrace of the Libyan desert, which serves as a base for the pyramids. Children ran beside the carriage, clamoring for money, and one or two boys, laboring under the singular delusion that they were contributing to our pleasure, played the reed flute after a most weary and distressing fashion. But there was less annoyance from these causes than you generally meet in Italy or even some parts of Switzerland. Nearer the desert, there were belts of drifted sand across the road, and the wheat and clover, after struggling briefly with the ancient enemy, ceased on either side. It was so difficult for the horses to climb the last slope that we dismounted and walked to the northern base of the Great Pyramid on the top of which a little flag was fluttering, and two or three dark forms were perceptible. The modern house, built by the Khedive for the reception of his royal and imperial guests, offers to all visitors the advantage of shade and cold steps to sit on. A crowd of fellas was in attendance, eager to help us up and down, to climb both pyramids in ten minutes, or to sell us modern scarabee. They are now, however, a much better behaved race than formerly. Nearly all of them have a fair smattering of English. Their demands are regulated by Carsten, and if the traveller chooses one as an inevitable guide and protector, he escapes much annoyance from the others. I had no desire to make the ascent a second time, although it was well worth doing once. A crawl into the hot and stifling interior can only be recommended to the archaeologist. The grand, simple masses, built by Cheops and Zephrenes, satisfy both the eye and the imagination, when viewed from below, a few hundred yards from the bases. The best point, I think, is a sandy mound beyond the things, 
Once you get the exact view given in one of Carl Werner's wonderful aquarels. I found this sphinx buried under 10 or 15 feet more of sand than when I saw him last. The face was evidently intended to be seen from below, for its expression becomes almost grotesque when the spectator is brought so near its level. About eight years ago, Monsieur Mariette discovered a very ancient temple just beyond it. This, all for lying wholly below the surface of the desert, has been kept tolerably clear of the drifting sand. I have seen nothing in Egypt which seems so old as this temple. It is built mainly of rose-colored granite. The pillars simply square monoliths, roofs and doorways of the same, and no sign of inscriptions or decorative sculptures. It is certainly older, and who shall say how much older, than the pyramids. In some sepulchral chambers lying back of the pillared curd, the roof is made of huge blocks of alabaster. The whole edifice, in its bare and massive simplicity, suggests Stonehenge rather than the later architecture of Egypt. A small fee opened for us one of the lower rooms of the Khedive's house, and we lunched in coolness and quiet. One of the native hangers-on, after looking at me for some time, said, You were here a long while ago? Yes, I answered. Twenty years or more? Yes. And there was a gentleman with you? A Nemtsui? German, I think. Yes. And you had trouble with the man who went up the pyramid? You went to yonder village, pointing towards it, called the sheikh and had the man punished? Yes. And there was a boy who carried a water bottle and the sheikh of the village told him to bring coffee for you. And there was no coffee at first, and the sheikh gave the boy a slap, threw him out the door, and told him not to come again until he brought it. Yes. Well, I was that boy. I questioned Ahmed to know whether he had told the story of my first visit with its serial comic interlude, but he had not. The man's astonishing memory, after so many years of tourists, had recognized me and reproduced the incident with all its minor details. By this time, several other carriages had arrived from Cairo. Parties were launching on the cold steps, bargaining for modern scarabees, strolling towards the Sphinx with a crowd of Arabs at their heels, or climbing the steps of the Great Pyramid with many an awkward straddle, shoved from below and pulled up from above. There were tweed coats, eyeglasses, canes, chignons, fans, parasols, but let not the romantic reader suppose that the sublime repose of the old Egyptian world was in the least prejudiced by these objects. They were but as driftwood or seaweed searching around the base of mightier natural pyramids along the shores of Norway or Maine. One is carried so far back, set in the presence of such imperious human will and unhindered power, 
that the real and far more permanent greatness of our age fades away and its careless representatives become for the time mere stingless insects than hum and buzz for a few minutes to be carried away by the next breeze. No! You might pack billiard rooms, lager beer saloons, café chatons, stockbrokers' offices and free trade league around the pyramids, hold political meetings with a speaker standing on the sphinx's head, or make the aditum of the old temple below resound with revival hymns, and you could not diminish the impression which these wonderful monuments exact and compel you to feel, a deaf faith, a lost race, a forgotten power, a half-discovered history, names and glories and supreme human forces become as shadows. Yet what tremendous overwhelming records they have left behind. As I rested in the shade, looking up to the grey pinnacles, so foreshortened by nearness that much of their actual height was lost, yet still indescribably huge, I could think of but one thing. We must have a new chronology of man. There before me, the Ashmosic reckoning was not only antedated, but a previous growth of long, uncertain duration was made evident. There, in stones scattered about the desert, were inscriptions cut long before any tradition of Hebrew, Sanskrit, Phoenician or Greek. Clear, intelligible words, almost as legible to modern scholarship as those of living languages. This one long, unbroken stream of light into the remote past illuminates darker historic apparitions on all sides and sweeps us, with or without a will, to a new and wonderful backward starting point. Of course, the learned in all countries are familiar with our recently acquired knowledge on this point. But is it not time to make it the property of the people everywhere? to discard the unmanly fear that one form of truth can ever harm any other form, to reveal anew through the grandeur of man's slow development the unspeakable grandeur of the divine soul by which it is directed. I would not venture to say that even the English tourist who addressed me with Is there uh, anything particular to see here? was not touched somewhere in the roots of his externally indifferent nature. I am quite sure that cold chicken was not the only thought of the young ladies who sat lunching on the steps. When I find a gay young Irishman to whom snipe and wild ducks are prime interest, nevertheless going out to see the pyramids by moonlight and then again at two o'clock in the morning to climb them for the sunrise, I am convinced that Cheops built it better than he knew, and that this pile of stones means much more to the world than the depository of his royal carcass. Well, I meant to send you practical, realistic reports of Egypt, and this letter will be sure to bring down upon me the wrath of Mark Twain, and all others who distrust earnest impressions. I pled guilty, however, and confess that I do not wholly belong to the generation which makes jokes of accidents and murders and finds material for laughter in classic art.
End of section 17. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Monica MC.